All around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to design, build and operate better and more resilient infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. Hello and welcome to the Engineers Collective podcast from New Civil Engineer. It's the first one of 2024 and we're trying something a bit new, bringing back our news section. I'm acting news editor Rob Hakimian and with me is our editor Gavin Pearson. <laughs> Forgot your name for a second there, Gavin. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, and also with me is our reporter Tom Johnson. Hi. So before we get into the interview portion of this episode, which is with Arthur D. Little about how hydrogen is going to electroshock the energy transition, we thought we'd talk about some news stories from the early part of 2024 that have uh, caught our attention and we'll be keeping track of throughout the year and maybe beyond. Uh, Gavin, since you're the editor, do you want to kick us off? Yes, absolutely. So I think one of the things that I've picked up over the first couple of weeks of this year, um, partly in some conversations and then with a news Oh, well, with a feature in the upcoming magazine that you've done, Rob, is that there's a number of people increasingly keen to look back at projects, be they complete or nearly complete, and understand some of what went wrong. Um, it's something that we don't do often enough as an industry, or perhaps we do, but we keep it to ourselves within different companies. Um, but your piece on the uh, Edinburgh Botanic Garden uh, with Balfour Beatty, I think is exactly the kind of thing the industry needs. So the story is that they attempted to make it a net zero build. They, yeah. They it, took a number of different approaches. As they, you know. Yeah, it was an interesting topic. I mean, I hadn't read about the project before I was assigned it, but they were, Valfabiti were refreshingly honest about it. Yeah, they wanted to do a net zero construction. So they were doing things like using all the electric plant and, and they looked into a bunch of the other initiatives like having a carbon a uh, construction consolidation center where they would have all their materials not far from site and only have two deliveries a day delivered by a fully electric vehicle. But yeah, as I, as I found out in the interview, basically all of these things didn't work in the long run and they had to go back to using diesel plant and the budget wasn't there for the construction consolidation site. So The interesting thing here is, I mean, partly on the net zero side, if it's something that people feel is possible and they find out it isn't within a project. How often are people telling that story more widely? How often are companies willing to admit that actually their attempts at net zero may not have worked for some reason? Um, and this, the, the parts of that story that look at kind of the supply chain and some of the challenges to find people who could do certain kinds of work in order to recycle some of the waste material, uh, some of the challenges, as you say, the, the, the fact that they went back to using diesel Mm. Uh, plants in part just because the capacity of some of the the the, the electric plants available just wasn't there to achieve the things they wanted to achieve yeah and amazingly the electric plant costs more to rent even though it does less which is weird. yeah which and I, and, even, and again there if this is something that's relatively innovative then i guess plant costs a bit more but to find out that it costs quite significantly more um, and to see some of the challenges that they they hit around the scale of the project, in some ways you'd think probably a smaller project is easier to do net zero, and then you find out that some aspects to what you're attempting to achieve 
costs so much that probably they're only possible on a very large project. It's um, It was quite an interesting and honest piece, frankly, from uh, an interview point of view of Balfour Beatty, uh, which I applaud. I think that's the kind of thing the industry really needs to talk more about. Yeah. If we're going to get the supply chain right, then uh, that's going to need some open conversations about which bits of the supply chains aren't there, what kind of technology needs to be advanced. Yeah, yeah. I think Balfour Beatty chose this project because it's a relatively small one, £15 million. So what does it mean for a bigger project if they can't do it on a small project? On the one hand, it does make it seem like it's going to make it even harder to decarbonize a big project. But on the other hand, a big project has more budget to do things like the carbon consolidation and stuff. But yeah, I'm sure it's not the only project that's coming up against these barriers. We just don't hear about it. But uh, people can read more about that feature in the in the February issue, which should be out around the same time that this podcast comes out and should be on the website also around the same time, maybe in a week or so. So Tom, how about you? What have you been looking at this this January? Um, one story that I was particularly interested in was the uh, government's plans to accelerate their proposal for the Teddington Direct River abstraction. Oh yeah, Thames Waters plan. Yeah. Thames Waters, sorry. Um, which is a plan, is a river abstraction, abstraction project on the River Thames to transfer 75 million litres of water to Lee Valley Reservoirs during uh, periods of drought. Um, it's quite a controversial uh, proposal as the, the waste from the treatment will then be pumped back into the Thames. I believe what it is, is it will, it will always be pumping towards the reservoir. It's only during times of drought. Yeah. They have to replace the water they take out, but the water that they're going to replace it with is only lightly treated. I suppose I can't remember what the official term is. It's still going to have all sorts of chemicals in it. Yeah. Pharmaceuticals, microplastics, and forever chemicals. Yeah. Which doesn't sound as romantic as it seems, forever chemicals. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting project because. It seems to say that Thames Water is expecting more drought and longer periods slash more intense periods of drought in the future, which is obviously something that does need to be catered for and the capacity for the drinking water to still come through people's taps during those periods of drought obviously needs to be addressed. But this project in general is is quite controversial, as as we said, too, due to the waste that's planned to be put back into the Thames in those periods of drought. And it's just interesting because obviously the Thames is already quite bad for that. So you think that they would come up with a some form of mechanism to not have to do that. But yeah. at the moment, it doesn't seem like they're willing to look into any other alternatives. Yeah. I think there's already a petition with 30,000 signatures yes, to, exactly. to, to stop it. They've decided to do it through a development consent order rather than through local planning, which will accelerate it, but also, you know, the central government is more likely to approve it than the local government, I think. Mm. So that's also controversial. Our other reporter, Tom Pashby, wrote about this one, and they approached Offor and DEFRA for comment, and neither replied so that speaks in so, itself so is this project effectively replacing uh, a previous facility or upgrading or expanding or is it an entirely new facility they're talking about I believe it's an entirely new yeah. facility yeah it's a new facility with a tunnel to the lockwood reservoir which is where the water would be treated and then transported to the lockwood reservoir for them to be used as drinking water from there 
But it does kind of beg the question as to why we're not generally trying to, well, I mean, to some degree we are, but why we're not putting more effort into increasing the water capacity, drinking water capacity of the UK by building more reservoirs, which there are proposals for, but they take time and cost a lot of money. So I guess these are kind of schemes that are being brought in or ideas, visions that are being brought in in the likelihood that maybe these reservoirs won't get built. I think they're kind of in conjunction with reservoirs. I mean, the whole water cycle is quite complex and engineers in the water sector will know this and probably you're rolling their eyes at our lack of knowledge. But I think that water transfer schemes like this are, you know, if you build a reservoir, you're also going to need to build pipes Mm. to fill it and you're going to have to get the water from somewhere. So I don't know. While I don't like the idea of pumping treated sewage into the Thames at the same time, if it's going to increase our water resilience and provide more clean water to customers, maybe that's it's a necessary evil. You know, mm. I haven't done any research into what the chemicals in, in treated water can do, but people aren't generally swimming in the Thames, are they? So, and mm. it's already kind of messy. I'm playing devil's advocate here. Yeah. I mean, I've swam in the Thames. Yeah. At Shadwell Basin. Yeah. And it was... Horrendous. And look, look what it's done to you. Exactly. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, on the other hand, if this does go ahead, it'll be a great contract for some some companies to build a massive tunnel and, and a new all these new facilities. So true. You know, swings and roundabouts. Another water related topic that I wanted to bring up was tidal range projects. This is something that I've been uh, writing about for a year or so now since I've discovered what tidal range projects are, which are either tidal lagoons or tidal barrages, where when people think of tidal energy, they think of turbines being turned by streams and currents, which is similar to wind turbines, but with water. But that's tidal stream, and it has much lower electricity generation compared to tidal range. It builds up water on one side, and then gradually when they turn the turbines on, they let the water flow through the turbines using that kinetic energy to spin the turbines and, and create a lot more energy with more potential to add to the UK energy mix. But unfortunately, we don't have any tidal range projects in the UK. There's about eight or so in development. And uh, having spoken to experts in this field, they're all a bit baffled as to why we're not pursuing it because the UK has the second rate highest tidal range the west coast of the UK specifically has the second highest tidal range in the world Roger Falconer who I've spoken to this about a couple of times he says you know if in the Middle East they build a lot of solar panels because they have sun so in in Britain we have a lot of tides so we should build in, be building tidal range but the government has shown almost next to no support for it in recent years it was wasn't in the 2023 energy bill and it was very passingly mentioned in the UK or the British Energy Security Plan. But uh, this week, the first, the second week of January, there was a parliamentary debate where MP for Birkenhead in Liverpool, he brought this, tabled this motion to basically tell the government that they need to get their act together and start supporting it. I mean, he does have a bit of a vested interest being from Liverpool because one of the biggest, well, not one of the biggest, but one of the most developed tidal range schemes is the Liverpool City Region Combined Authority's Mersey Tidal Project. Uh, and he obviously is pushing for that. Nick, Mick Whitley is his name. Uh, and yeah, basically after his long tirade about how great tidal range could be for the UK, the uh, Department of Energy Security and Net Zero 
said that they're going to work with the tidal range sector to build an evidence base and hopefully we'll go from there. So that's a bit of encouraging news. I mean, you think that the evidence base there should be reasonably straightforward. You know, sometimes with some of these technologies, you might be looking at some slightly marginal projects like, okay, China has done something interesting with one thing somewhere um, at a basin. But actually with this tidal range energy has been in use for decades in other countries as close as France. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you kind of have to wonder why on earth when renewable energy became such a significant part of the UK's energy focus for the future, probably back in the 90s, the tidal range hasn't really been focused on why it's largely been sidelined and, and ultimately why we don't have any. Yeah, it is It is quite baffling. It's um, one thing that developers have come up against is the government's insistence on value for money from tidal range projects. And because we haven't built any here in the UK, there's no track record you know, to say whether you're going to get value for money. There was one tidal lagoon in Swansea, the Swansea Bay Lagoon, that got development consent order in 2015. But due to a lack of government support, it didn't start on site within five years. So that permission lapsed and now we're back to the drawing board. In fact, the MP Whitley brought this up in his speech and said, you know, it was a failure of government. It could have been a great pathfinder project. And again, we see those kinds of pathfinder projects in other sectors, actually. And the reality is for some of these technologies, for some of these areas, especially in the energy sector, there's a global competition underway to get companies who know how to do this, get the guys with the skills, get the investment uh, that can set up these industries and make them work. Yeah, It's it's nice to think that we can rely on the private sector to kind of push this stuff forward. But in the end, if you want to take that first leap, I mean, in every major area of energy, the government has always played a part in doing that in the first instance, isn't it? Yeah. They're, they're quite interesting, the projects as well, because they can also be used as bridges, uh, road bridges or cycle bridges or foot bridges. So in a way, I'm sure there's certain instances where a tidal range scheme could essentially kill two birds of one stone, provide a crossing to the across the yeah. stream or river, and also in doing so produce renewable energy for the grid. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely the case with Mersey Tidal. It will create a link between the two banks of the Mersey, the Wirral and Liverpool itself, which would be great. There's that crazy tidal barrage scheme on the East Coast in the, the Wash, uh, which I can't remember where exactly it, the wash is, but it's the big gap in the middle of the east coast of Britain. And they want it to be not only a tidal barrage, but a river, a road bridge and a sea container, yeah. underwater sea container port. And haven't heard much more about that for a year, but I wonder where, how that's doing. But as you were saying, Gavin, the technologies we've seen with um, wind power we built so much of it that the price has come way, way down because the, the technology is mature, the ch- supply chains are all there, and we can now, it's almost like an export for the UK now, which could be the same for tidal range for the UK. If we start building one, t- Mersey Tidal might be a good one because it's only 700 megawatts compared to some of these other proposals, which are much bigger. Then we'll start building the supply chain, start maturing the technology and, and perhaps start selling that to other countries as well. So net zero, while it might be expensive, it's also an op- a business opportunity. It's a, it's a transition. I think tidal range should be a big part of that. Yeah. Which ironically is the, the exact reversal of what we've done with the nuclear industry in that we decided to reinvigorate the nuclear, nuclear industry, Hinkley Point C, 
big French company behind it because they have lots of nuclear power because they have invested in that over many, many years. Yeah. I just, there is, as you say, it's one of those strange ones where as a, an energy sector, the tidal range side feels like an obvious gap for the UK that I, I couldn't reasonably explain why it never happened. Well, speaking of energy, it's probably time to move on to the interview portion of this podcast, which, as I said before, is with Arthur D. Little, and we're discussing how hydrogen can contribute to the net zero energy transition. So that's coming up next. All around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to design, build and operate better and more resilient infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. So with us today, we have Benedict Unger, who is Principal at Arthur D. Little's Energy and Utilities Practice based in London. Benedict is an expert in energy generation with a focus on clean technology and solutions. He has spent the last decade advising investors, developers and utilities on strategies to deliver zero carbon electricity and hydrogen. Alongside him, we have Oliver Golly, a partner at Arthur D. Little based in Frankfurt. In his role, Oliver focuses on driving energy transformation and advises his clients on strategic growth challenges, M&A, capability partnerships and sustainability strategies. And alongside them, we also have Florence Carlo, an Arthur D. Little partner based in Brussels. Florence has worked around Europe in leading energy companies for almost two decades. She is well versed in the strategic challenges and decision making processes energy companies face along their whole value chain. So welcome to all of you. Hello. 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 Nice to meet you. So in its report, Arthur D. Little says that hydrogen has the ability to electroshock the energy transition. So. For those of us who are unaware, can you tell us in a nutshell, why do you think this is the case? Certainly. So what we see in the last years is much of the focus on achieving net zero has been on green electricity. However, there is a growing awareness on hydrogen as being a key contributor to the energy transition. Indeed, today, hydrogen is recognized as being an accelerator to the decarbonization, especially in sectors in which emissions are hard to abate such as, for example, heavy industry and long-haul transportation, typically industry that are challenging to electrify directly due to the high energy requirements, but also some operational constraints. So in a nutshell, we see hydrogen as being a source of green energy capable of unlocking some tricky carbon-intense business cases. So to go step back a bit, how, what are the ways that hydrogen can be converted into energy? How is it, how is it done? Yeah, I mean, first of all, hydrogen will play an important role in the energy mix and is absolutely critical to achieve the energy transition. We, of course, want to decarbonize our world. And in many cases, electrification is uh, a good solution. But also, in many cases, electrification is not possible. And there, hydrogen comes into play. Essentially, hydrogen is relevant in four sectors, industry, transport, power generation and buildings. Arguably, industry is the most important and most urgent. There are some industrial processes that need a lot of heat um, at high temperature, especially the energy intensive industry like steel, aluminium, cement, glass ceramics, but also chemical processes. Burning hydrogen provides this high temperature and for many instances is the only viable solution to decarbonize these processes. For transport, very similar, 
uh, where electrification is not an option due to weight or cost or size of the batteries, long-haul transport ships, uh, potentially uh, uh, heavy-duty trucks, and long-haul transportation, hydrogen is an option. For the power sector, hydrogen provides a substitute to for gas, gas plants, and we will need gas plants to uh, balance the volatility of renewable generation. And for buildings, that's typically less relevant in many countries, but nevertheless, it's also a substitute for natural gas where an uh, existing infrastructure already exists. So overall, there are a lot of new applications, and I always get the question, which application comes first? Um, Typically, it's less a question of application, but more a question of location. The locations where hydrogen will be available at large quantities, they will have a number of applications for hydrogen across sectors. You said there's already all those four areas to do it. So I mentioned hydrogen buses in my introduction as one area of transport, but I'm sure there's plenty of areas where it's already being used. I mean, do you have any examples of where hydrogen is already quite commonly used? Yeah, and I think it's a very good question to bring up here because we already talked a little bit about uh, where hydrogen will have the largest potential, especially in the short and medium term. And I think when we consider the question where is it used today um, and in what way it, it's both consumed and produced will give us clues about that, uh, about where hydrogen will become relevant first going forward and then about the full potential of, of hydrogen. So currently, on a large scale, hydrogen is only used in chemicals and petrochemicals and these, these large um, uh, industries. And it's almost always used as an, not as an en energy carrier per se, but as a feedstock to produce other commodities, such as ammonia or methanol. Um, of course, other niches of hydrogen use exist today, including in transport, as you mentioned, buses. And we've seen business models there that emphasize not just supply of hydrogen, but uh, put, create an ecosystem where there is both the production and the consumption and the storage um, as, a, as, a, as a holistic solution. Um, and fuel cell vehicles in particular are now being deployed uh, and developed particularly in countries such as Japan and, and South Korea, but even, even in Europe and Germany, for example. What we haven't seen is hydrogen being used on a larger scale, both in power generation and in buildings. So even though the equipment manufacturers on both sides, so gas turbines for the for the power sector and, and hot water boilers for buildings, are offering hydrogen-ready appliances to the market, there are only pilot projects underway to use these at this point. And then we should also mention that in order to use hydrogen in buildings, we don't necessarily need to change much. Uh, we've, we've, we've talked about um, a quick win being blending hydrogen into existing gas networks. That only goes so far and provides a little bit, um, but it could be a first um, pocket of hydrogen demand to be created um, early on. Thanks, Benedict. So, yeah, as you say, we're still quite early in this, and, and with any change like this, big change, potentially revolutionary change, there's, there's barriers to implementing it. So briefly, what, what are the current barriers? There must be many. Yes, uh, Robert, you are absolutely right. Unfortunately, there are still multiple barriers to the development of hydrogen. First of all, we see a lack of competitiveness. Uh, although costs are expected to decrease significantly in the long term, companies that are investing now in hydrogen infrastructure and technology may not generate short-term profits and take clearly a bet on the future. 
That's the first challenge. The second challenge is the lack of infrastructure in some regions of the world. Um, we, we see that we need uh, infrastructure to support the production, transportation, storage of hydrogen, and today it's still uh, limited, which prevents clearly the scaling of the supply and the demand. However, let's be optimistic, there are national plans in Europe that exist to accelerate the development of the needed infrastructure. The third challenge is the regulatory uncertainty. The regulatory framework for hydrogen is still evolving, and there is uncertainty around how government will incentivize or regulate the hydrogen technology. This might again lead uh, to some players waiting and see how the industry and the related incentives will evolve before engaging in huge investment. I mentioned demand, demand and the timing of the market demand and its adoption is critical as well. While we see an interest today in hydrogen as a fuel and energy storage medium, um, we don't know how quickly and widely it will be adopted um, in the near future. However, awareness of hydrogen as an alternative energy solution is growing, as it is shown by the range of strategy initiatives being put in place across leading economies. And then one of the last um, uh, challenge I would like actually to, uh, to raise is the technology uncertainty. The technology for producing and storing, and storing hydrogen is still developing. And how best optimize the processes for maximum efficiency and cost effectiveness is currently unclear. So we, we see that we are still in a learning phase. So scalability is lacking around many technologies such as ammonia cracking to recover ammonia to hydrogen or liquefaction regasification technology. Just before we go on to the next question, just to follow that up, who, how, how will we develop those technologies? Whose responsibility is it? Is it the public or private? What do you think? So I think it's a little bit of both. So private players um, have clearly a role to play in the development of those technology. They had, it's part of the core business. So we see companies like, for example, Total Energies that clearly have the right to play and the right to win uh, when it, it comes to developing technology. However, as I mentioned, cost is still uh, a challenge today. So it needs to come with incentives from um, governments, uh, from uh, the regulators to incentivize those private players to invest today. Interesting. And one of the other big barriers you mentioned is infrastructure. So, so what kind of infrastructure do we need? And, and is there any infrastructure we already have that we could retrofit to work with hydrogen? Yeah, indeed. Infrastructure is, is really make or break for the hydrogen economy. Um, if you talk about infrastructure, we talk about production of hydrogen, transport, and uh, ultimately the usage of hydrogen. For the production, uh, the main uh, uh, application for green hydrogen is electrolysis facilities, and they require large amounts of cheap green energy. So there's really a trade-off here, either to have the production of electrolysis production uh, where the uh, where the demand for hydrogen is. So you have higher production costs, but low transport cost, or you have the production where you have lots of green, cheap energy, like in the Middle East with lots of solar. So you have very cheap production costs, but you need the transport via ship or maybe ultimately via pipeline. What we see today is that uh, there's a lot of pilot projects that are closer to demand because the infrastructure doesn't really exist at the moment. 
And this will move uh, sometime into uh, a more centralized infrastructure in uh, countries like Middle East, regions like Middle East uh, or Africa. For the transport infrastructure, uh, that will be a mixture of new build and retrofitting of gas pipelines. Technically, gas pipelines can be used for hydrogen as well. There needs to be some upgrade. There needs to be a little bit of new coating. There needs to be new pump uh, equipment, etc. But it can be retrofitted. The more uh, critical question is, what's the transition plan? So what's the time where a gas pipeline will be decommissioned and a hydrogen pipeline commissioned? That, of course, needs to be aligned with the customer demand. Uh, ideally, the customers, the industry customers also switch from gas to hydrogen at the same time. So we need an orchestrated plan to do that. And then for the end customers, again, it's both. Um, for industry, it's mostly new assets. If you think about steel, you need a hydrogen furnace, which is different from, from existing furnaces, and the steel industry is already looking into that. Um, but in some cases, assets are already hydrogen ready. So in the power industry, current um, gas turbines are made hydrogen ready and can be retrofitted to hydrogen. And also in the residential heating, uh, a lot of gas boilers can be made hydrogen ready today. So in the end, it's a mixture of both. Interesting. But that must also, yeah, it makes it feel unappealing when there's so much work to do to bring it into, into regular use. But uh, that brings me on to my next question, which is, which do you think is going to be the field where we'll see it used most regularly, hydrogen, first? Yeah, first, that's clearly the energy intensive industry. Um, and, and the question here is the, the question of the commercial case. To, to do something, of course, companies look for a real commercial case. At the moment, hydrogen is much more expensive than other forms of energy. And the commercial case is when the demand for sustainable for green products is high. A good example is green steel. There is a demand for green steel, steel that is sustainably produced. And therefore, we see in the steel industry quite some activity to convert into hydrogen, uh, convert industrial processes into hydrogen. Um, and we see uh, expectations that in 2030 alone, 2 million ton of hydrogen will be used in Europe only by the steel industry. Other sectors will follow. But other sectors are a little bit dependent on, on two things. One is regulation to force them to get more sustainable. And, uh, and secondly, uh, the cost curve that green hydrogen becomes more cheap and more available with the more infrastructure and more scaling up the production. We've touched on regulation a couple of times. And uh, here in the UK, as I mentioned in the intro, in December, the government released its low carbon uh, it's its strategy to develop a low carbon hydrogen sector and reach 10 gigawatts of low carbon hydrogen production in the UK by 2030 in its strategy. So how does this compare to other countries approach to hydrogen and and does it does it make sense? Is there clear? Is it clear? Uh, Benedict, since you live in the UK, maybe you should go on this one. Yeah, certainly. Um, so I think the, the, the question of comparability is a very good one here. Let us start maybe by putting the strategy into context by its volume. So gas demand in recent years in the UK was about 1,000 terawatt hours annually. The 10 gigawatts of hydrogen production could deliver perhaps about 50 terawatt hours, so 5% of that, even if we assume very high capacity factors and efficiencies. So it's significant, um, but it's still very small compared to today's demand for natural gas. 
in when we when we compare it on an international basis, it's in line with the global trend of countries recognizing the potential of hydrogen. Um, and several other countries and regions have developed their own strategies. Um, Germany is committed to investing nine billion uh, in its national hydrogen strategy. They're also aiming to have 10 gigawatts of uh, 10 gigawatts of electrolyzer capacity by 2030, which they've increased from five gigawatts last year. Uh, and the European Union needs about 100 gigawatts of electrolyzer capacity by 2030, according to, to their Repower EU plan. And 40 gigawatts of that should be even produced in Europe. Japan has a very ambitious goal. They even they even call themselves um, or that they want to turn themselves into a hydrogen economy uh, or hydrogen society by 2050. And the government has aimed at a, a more than a hundred billion um, dollar equivalent in investment in the hydrogen sector over these uh, over this next 15 years. So the UK's hydrogen strategy makes sense uh, in the context of broader climate goals, um, and it, and hydrogen can obviously play a significant role in decarbonizing the hard to abate sectors such as heavy industry, transportation, etc. The strategy in the UK focuses on both blue hydrogen, so produced from natural gas with carbon capture and storage, and green hydrogen produced from water electrolysis. So that's that's a little bit of a difference to many other countries where the focus is purely on electrolysis. Um, the success of the strategy in the UK will depend on several factors, as it does elsewhere, uh, but that includes the availability of funding, development of infrastructure, the ability to scale up hydrogen production and usage. And it will require collaboration between all the players, uh, government, industry, research institution, uh, to drive innovation and ensure that the UK remains competitive. Um, compared with some, some of the other markets, the UK's early efforts are quite good, but also relatively small. So we had the hydrogen allocation round one, HAR1, um, for structure support in the UK. Um, and it delivered 11 projects last year, about 125 megawatts, with an average strike price of 241 pounds per megawatt hour. That is very high compared to other clean energy technologies, including things like floating offshore wind. Um, but these can be considered pilot projects. So we should, we should look less at the, 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 the value of the strike price, uh, as we should add. Um, it's a good sign that something gets done and it's, it's a good sign that there are 11 projects. Um, and we should expect the cost to come down substantially, starting even with HAR2, which, which will happen this year. So to conclude, I would say that the UK's hydrogen strategy is in line with what other countries are doing. Um, but of course, the, the success will depend on effective implementation, um, investment, collaboration, etc. Very interesting. Uh, just want to insert another question here since you brought it up. I forgot to put it on my list of questions. I don't know which of you wants to answer, but I should have asked at the start. What is the difference between blue hydrogen and green hydrogen and why are some countries preferring one over the other? I'm, I'm happy to take this one um, because because the, the, the UK being one of the few countries where both of them um, are of interest and are supported both from from the public uh, and companies. So basically, the current way of making hydrogen is using natural gas and using something called steam methane reforming to turn the um, CH4, which is methane, which is natural gas, into um, a, a product that is pure hydrogen and CO2. And that CO2 currently just gets emitted. So you get hydrogen as a product, but it's not sustainable. It just you just get rid of the 
uh, carbon content of the natural gas and emit it into the atmosphere. The idea to create blue hydrogen is to use the same technology and then capture the carbon in a carbon capture facility and then store the carbon, sequester it away. Um, and that's, you know, for, for, for some reason called blue hydrogen. Don't, don't ask us about colors. Um, it's, it's, it's a huge, uh, uh, source of confusion, but that's, that's what it's called. It's blue hydrogen, blue hydrogen. Green hydrogen then is, is electrolysis. And there's also a bit of a debate, um, a huge debate actually about when can hydrogen from electrolysis be truly considered green? Because obviously if you just connect to your electricity grid, um, and run your electrolyzer off of that, all the emissions that happen on the electricity grid from, from gas power plants and in some countries from coal power plants, they then actually count as your emissions for the electricity that you've used to produce your hydrogen. So either you build new electricity generation facilities that are zero carbon and then make your hydrogen from that, or you make it on a commercial basis that you have a contract to ensure that you're only using green electricity. And the devil there is in the detail, because how can you ensure that the electricity that you're using is actually generated on top of what would have already happened, which we call the additionality principle. So um, very, very complicated, um, even accounting uh, questions there. Mm. Very interesting. Thanks, Benedict. And sticking with you, because you're, as we said, in the UK, one of the interesting hydrogen stories that we've been covering on New Civil Engineer is about National Highways committing to build its lower Thames crossing road tunnel using hydrogen-powered machinery. It's done 50, it's got a 50 million hydrogen procurement contract out at the moment. And it says that lower Thames crossing is going to be a, a, a pathfinder for, for net zero construction, which sounds very ambitious, but, uh, what do you think? Is, is, is the machinery ready to make it possible? And do you think it will be a lot more expensive? Yes. So I think I would separate that question a little bit from the hydrogen strategy itself, because in the hydrogen strategy, it's mostly about volumes of, in the end, abated carbon emissions. In a project like the, the, the LTC, using hydrogen machinery, isn't so much about abating emissions because you know from a from a tunnel most of the emissions will happen by vehicles driving through it um so so the construction while there are significant uh, emissions associated with that it is not really what what this is about what it is about is creating a an ecosystem collaboration in the industry and innovation so it's a it's an ambitious goal. It, it's achievable though with with the right investment planning and collaboration with industry partners. Because hydrogen power machinery, while it's still at the early stages of development, there have been promising advancement in recent years. So several companies are working on developing hydrogen power construction equipment, excavators, bulldozers, etc. Um, this includes Hyundai, JCB, um, etc. And they're all very interested in, in making this equipment. So a project like this can really jump, jumpstart that, uh, that innovation and provide the, the investment that's needed in it. It should also be noted that a, when a government, um, or public body makes such an announcement, 
the cost comparison should always include some of the um, some of the societal cost. So one would price in the carbon emission savings that is expected by using hydrogen, perhaps even uh, air quality improvements uh, or lower noise levels. So while the project is likely to be significantly more expensive, the, the difference would be narrowed by the value of these benefits. And then, of course, as I said, um, there's an advantage um, in creating an ecosystem, in creating investment, which you know could even lead to manufacturing for hydrogen vehicles being situated in the UK. There might be export potential, etc. Um, there's of course a very strong need for national highways to collaborate closely with the equipment manufacturers, but also with the hydrogen suppliers. There needs to be hydrogen at the site. Where is that coming from? Um, and other stakeholders to ensure that not just machinery, but also hydrogen is available, reliable, and to the extent possible, cost effective. Um, so I think the construction of the Lower Thames Crossing with hydrogen machinery can be but it's achievable with, with right investment planning and collaboration. I guess that kind of leads me on to the, the final question, which is looking at the big picture, if we're really going to see hydrogen adopted and get the electroshock you predicted, does there need to be a global strategy for hydrogen adoption? Definitely, there, there's a need for a global strategy and those global strategies already exist uh, next to the local national plan. So if we are looking at uh, Europe more specifically, uh, we see that the European Clean Hydrogen Alliance was launched in 2020 as part of the new industrial strategy for, for Europe. So that alliance brings together industry, national and local authorities, uh, civil society and other stakeholders to achieve the deployment of hydrogen um, and hydrogen technologies by 2030 uh, all along the H2 value chain. I mentioned also the local national plans. Indeed, at local level, we note also many initiatives to develop national strategy, like in the UK market, as we already mentioned today. And as part of those strategies, the national leaders have understood the importance to interact and partner with the neighbors to ensure efficient production and transport of H2 across borders and obviously to benefit from the synergies, leveraging local strengths. So, we mentioned already the UK, but there are other countries in Europe that also push for more partnership at global level. If we look at the Belgian market, as uh, for instance, Fluxis, which is actually the local TSO, has recently signed a memorandum of understanding with National Grid, so the TSO in the UK, whose ambition is to explore the benefit of a hydrogen link between their respective infrastructures, which would unlock the North Sea hydrogen for mainland Europe. And Fluxis has followed the same approach with other regions like with Oman and more specifically with OQGN. Uh, they actually uh, reached uh, an agreement for strategic cooperation in the development of hydrogen infrastructure project in Oman. But we see also in Germany that they have ongoing discussion with OGE, which is one of the biggest utility also in Germany. Interesting. So there's plenty going on, but yeah, it's going to take still seems like there's a lot to do to get there. But if uh, countries have these targets for certain levels of hydrogen generation by 2030, then that's a good thing. So are you feeling positive about the hydrogen transition? Do you think it can happen? 
definitely it can happen it will happen um now the question of profitability and the timing of that profitability remains uncertain all right well we'll leave it on that note thank you very much florence thank Thank you rob thank you benedict thank you and thank you oliver thank you very much and you can read their full report on hydrogen and how it will electroshock the energy transition on the Arthur D. Little website. I'll also include a link in the show notes. So that's it for this month's episode of the Engineers Collective. I've been your host, Rob Hakimian, and I'll see you next time for our February edition. Thank you again. All around the world, Engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to design, build and operate better and more resilient infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Together, we are advancing infrastructure.